You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Hey everybody, welcome back to Josh Swallows Broadway. Here I am with our producers, Alan and Elizabeth. Hi, friends. Hello, 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 hello. Elizabeth, (laughs) you're in the middle of a hurricane. How's it going? Um, Well, considering that I've grown up with hurricanes every year, this is nothing. It's a cat one. 70 mile an hour winds, doesn't matter. This is a cat one. Fuck that. I'm going to go fishing. (laughs) Honestly, I remember. I remember when I was when I used to live in Florida, I had a kite that I connected to a fishing rod. And as a, a hurricane was rolling in, I was probably very stupidly flying a kite with a fishing rod. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, because I got I got really tired of reeling it in manually. You know, like you do with with your with your string and you go like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to reel the no. string. in. I was like, how do I get that even better? And so I put it on a fishing line, a fishing and rod. You were an adult. No, I was like 10 or 8 or something. <laughs> it would have been better if you were an adult. That sounds like some major stuff. <laughs> well, speaking of lightning striking, um, <laughs> how's that for a segue? I love I'm that. Re- thank you. I'm really excited about today's show. Um one of my like I've been a huge fan of Michael Riedel for a long time, and he's a controversial person. Like I've been in two shows that the man has gone after in his columns, but it has always been my biggest guilty pleasure. But then when he started writing books like Razzle Dazzle and Singular Sensation, my fandom just kind of exploded because I don't know. He's a genius. He's a brilliant storyteller. And I think he loves Broadway more than all of us combined. I don't disagree. Okay. Elizabeth, it's true. It's true. I mean, into it. I will. Elizabeth, if you could. You're more experienced than I am. I'm I'm looking at this book here. This is this is what? 200, 300 pages of Broadway love. I want to see that out of you, Elizabeth. Yeah, seriously. His new book is coming out in November, right? What was that? You broke up. Oh, I'm sorry. Hurricane stuff. Um, <laughs> I, said, I said his new book is coming out in November, right? Yes. And I just got to read it. And I am so excited. So without further ado, here we go. Josh Swallows. Josh Swallows.
everybody. Now that you've heard the theme song, really welcome to Josh Swallows Broadway. Today's guest I'm so excited about. He is the brilliant and famous columnist, Michael Riedel, who is not only the author of one of my favorite books, Razzle Tassel, but now he has his brand spanking new book, Singular Sensation, coming out this November. Welcome to the show, Michael Riedel! Well, I'm flattered, Josh, uh, but um, there's a part of me that thinks I should call the FBI. <laughs> that's, that's a scary word. <laughs> it is, but I am. You're my miracle. Um, I... I always turn to you, especially before I was really like working in the industry, to know what was happening on Broadway. And um, I always just wanted to like be your best friend. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, where do you get to know me? You, you won't to make that mistake again, trust me. <laughs> well, ask, first of- ask, ask people like, uh, oh, Julie Taymor and uh, Rosie O'Donnell and a few of the other people I skewered over the years. Let me, but you know what though, uh, you know your new book, singular, singular sensation. You champion these people, though. Yeah, no, I mean on the whole, um, on the whole, I do uh, love theater people, and they're great fun. They're eccentric, and they're very colorful people to uh, to capture, certainly in my column and in my books. And um, you know, they live, uh, they live on the high wire, and uh, man, when they soar. They come up with some of the greatest shows of all time, but when they fall, they often fall without a net. Yeah, and I've been in a few of those myself. <laughs> um, what inspired you to get into writing the gossip columns? Well, I, um, you know, I was not really a theater critic, although I know have known many theater critics in my day, and I just thought. Uh, that would not be the life for me uh, to go to the theater every single night and then to rush home and have to write a book report uh, was seemed kind of boring to me. I preferred to mingle with theater people, to get to know them, to interview them, to write about them. And I was always interested because I was never, um, I'm never a, a big theater fan. I like the theater, but I wasn't a fan who wanted to be around it all the time. I was more interested as I started writing about it in the business aspect of things, because as you know, um, these shows cost a tremendous amount of money and, and people put so much of their reputations and their financial life and their emotional life on the line to get these Broadway shows on. So there's just a dramatic, it's a dramatic business to cover. Uh, because as I say, you know, when they hit it, if you hit it with the Lion King, you can make worldwide $9 billion. But if you flop out with Spider-Man, you can lose a hundred million dollars. Isn't that remarkable? Yeah. And I always thought the business aspect, the high stakes business aspect of it was fascinating. And I, I spent a lot of time getting to learn the business from some fun producers, many of whom appear in my book, Singular Sensation, The Triumph of Broadway, and indeed my first book, Razzle Dazzle, The Battle for Broadway. I don't know. I had a natural affinity for the producers. And I think they liked the fact that I was engaged, interested in the behind the scenes way shows come together. And that just led me to start saying, you know what? I'm going to cover this business, this uh, industry, not as a critic who just reviews the art form, but I'm going to take a close look at how the business really works. And that led me to some, you know, to some great stories that I had uh, in my columns over the years and to some, you know, fun stories that I put in uh, Singular Sensation. Yeah, well, also Razzle Dazzle. I would say it's fair to say that you've, you're also somewhat of a theater historian at this point. Yeah, I mean, when I wrote Razzle Dazzle, I really... I really thought, okay, I need a, 
I need a big idea for a book. I can't just string together a bunch of stories. And then I hit on the idea after talking to people who are sadly no longer with us, but people like Jimmy Niederlander, who created Mm -hmm. the Niederlander Empire, uh, Jerry Schoenfeld, who is the president of the Schubert Organization, and some other old-time producers, that their business was really in the crapper in the 60s and 70s when the city was going bankrupt, Times Square was sleazy and dangerous, cultural tastes had changed and you know rock rock music was now the uh the in 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 fashion and broadway just seemed so out of date something that your grandmother would go to see and i began to think well these guys stuck by broadway in the 70s and really kind of held it together and then they got shows like michael bennett with a chorus line and dream girls and then andrew lloyd webber came in with cats and uh cameron mcintosh came in with les mis and then cameron and andrew did fandom together and that kind of shored up the business in the 80s. And I realized that by, by, rescuing, by rescuing Broadway, by keeping Broadway together, these guys helped begin the redevelopment of Times Square. Because as Jerry Schoenfeld once told me, he said, you know, our business was over with. If our neighborhood collapsed, we would collapse with it. So we not only had to find shows, but we had to figure out a way to work with the city to try to get Times Square on sounder footing so people wouldn't be terrified to go to Times Square. And, uh, you know, they worked damn hard to do it. And in the end, as I argued in Razzle Dazzle, it was Broadway that really helped lift the fortunes of Times Square and ultimately uh, New York City itself. And then Singular Sensation covers the 90s because my book ended in the, Razzle Dazzle ended in the early 90s. And Simon & Schuster, my publisher, wanted a sequel. And I thought, well, you know, the 90s were an interesting time. And I, I covered all these shows. I thought that was really when the, when Broadway was pushed back into the real mainstream of American popular culture with shows like Rent and Chicago and The Lion King and The Producers and Angels in America. I mean, shows that were as well known as any movie or TV series back in the day. And I began to think, you know, I could write a story about that decade where Broadway, you know, which had been kind of a backwater of the entertainment industry, suddenly became a place where movie studios wanted to be involved, Disney and uh, Warner Brothers. Every movie studio was getting involved in Broadway back then. And where big stars, people like Liam Neeson and Nicole Kidman and Judi Dench, uh, were coming to Broadway. And then I thought, okay, well, a lot of good stories to be told there, great shows to talk about. Uh, And I thought, well, how do I end this book? And then the obvious answer, I was looking at my window one day and I thought, oh, once upon a time, I looked out my window and I saw the World Trade Center. And in fact, I saw the World Trade Center get knocked down. Hmm. And I realized that Broadway hit this huge, this high point with the success of the producers with Nathan Lane and Mel Brooks. I'm sorry, Nathan Lane and uh, Matthew Broderick, Mel Brooks' show, of course. And I remember that summer being a really thrilling time on Broadway. I mean, it's just booming. You know, the whole Times Square was buzzy and exciting. And you'd go to a restaurant and you'd see Mel Brooks and Ann Bancroft and Mel would walk into Joe Allen or Orso and the whole place would burst out into applause. And he'd go from table to table, basking in everyone's compliments. And Ann would sit at their table. She'd let him walk around maybe for five or six minutes. And then she'd say, Mel, eat. And It was so cute, I got to say. But it was a tremendously exciting time for New York and the business. And then, man... You know, Tuesday, September 11th, we wake up and suddenly New York is under attack. And I remember calling Jerry Schoenfeld, the head of the Schubert organization, and the, and he said, Michael, I don't know what we're going to do. He said, I don't know how we're going to recover because 
he was just on the phone with the mayor and um, uh, Times Square was on Rudy Giuliani's top 10 list of terrorist attacks. There were fears at that time that there were more terrorists in the city. There were fears that there were more bombs that were going to go off. There was a tremendous fear because in Moscow, right. terrorists had taken over a theater and they killed 170 people. There was a tremendous fear that if you went to Broadway, terrorists could storm the theater and, and shoot the audience. So we really didn't know what was going to happen, but it was Mayor Giuliani, he was saying back then, uh, who said, you know, I'm not going to allow this city to be brought to its knees. And he called all the producers together and he said, I want Broadway up and running on Thursday night, September 13th. I want to show the world that New York is open for business. And it was, and I deal with this blow by blow account of how they got Broadway open two days after this terrible attack in singular sensation. And then, um, Within a year, within a year, Broadway was posting record grosses again. So the subtitle of my book, Triumph of Broadway, by no means that I mean it to be ironic as it is now, because of course now Broadway is closed for the foreseeable future and yeah. I'm not quite sure how we're going to come back. But I finished the book in February before, before the pandemic hit, and it was really a celebration of all those great shows and personalities of, of the 90s. And then facing this crisis, how Broadway rallied and staged this incredible comeback. That was the scheme of the book. Well, one thing that both of your books do for me is they give me a lot of hope. Um, you know, your first book with Razzle Dazzle, with uh, showing us the story of the Schuberts and how these theaters came to be, was so fascinating. But, um, you know, with Singular Sensation, what I love is these are the shows that really were coming up when I was starting to move to New York. Yeah. Um, you know, Rent, Titanic, all of those shows. And um, it's so fascinating to see how Broadway kept on evolving, yeah. changing, and becoming more mainstream. And I really believe that it was doing the same thing with shows like Hamilton. Yeah. And I believe that we will again. And your books really, really do bring that to me. Yes, I think so. I mean, this is unprecedented now. Broadway's never been closed uh, this long ever in its history. And uh, even during, they had some strikes that lasted a few weeks. But when this pandemic first came out, first broke out in New York, I remember when they shut down Broadway, I was talking to everybody and everyone said, it'll be two weeks. We'll be back in two weeks. We'll get it together. We'll pull ourselves back in two weeks. And eight months later with no uh, with no end in sight, I, I don't really think it can can come back until there's a vaccine. First of all, I mean, you could not engineer a pandemic to hurt Broadway more. You've got actors, right, who go on stage and sing and project, which is a huge way to spread the virus. And then in the cramped orchestra pits, you've got all these uh, musicians blowing on their instruments, another huge way to, to spread the virus. So yeah. the people who work on Broadway won't feel safe until there's a vaccine. And then the people who go to Broadway won't feel safe uh, sitting in a, you know, these are fairly small theaters. They're not these gigantic arenas, you know, in New York, they're fairly small theaters. And it's just going to take some time before people have the, um, the confidence and uh, the sense of safety before it comes back. And that could be, um, you know, a year, year and a half. I, I just don't know at this point. Yeah, no, it's terrifying. Um, especially because social distance seating is not going to bring in the amount of income that's needed no. to maintain a Broadway show, especially at these prices. It's, it's fascinating in singular sensation, seeing how much shows cost back then. 
I know it's well, you know, it's I have a chap, couple of chapters on um, the um, behind the scenes struggle. And it was a struggle to get uh, Chicago onto Broadway. Fran and Barry Weisler, who produced it, it was, you know, as you know, it was at Encores for only four performances. And uh, Fran and Barry loved it. And Fran called Fred Ebb. They were close to Candor and Ebb. And she said, oh, Freddie, we love your show. And, you know, when it moves to Broadway, if you could just give us a little piece of it, we would be so grateful. And Fred said, Fran, nobody's called. Nobody's interested in moving to Broadway. And the reason was it was a concert. And who would pay $75? That was the top ticket price. (laughs) Who would pay $75 to see a concert on Broadway? And Fran and Barry could not raise the money to get Chicago to Broadway. And at the end of the day, they decided, well, we believe in the show, so we'll violate Mel Brooks's cardinal rule of showbiz and we'll put our own money in the show. And, and as I end the chapter in my book, Fran and Barry crawled into bed that night and Fran turned out the lights and pulled the covers over her head. <laughs> and said, what, have we, what have we done? And, you know, now jump ahead 22 years later and the worldwide gross of uh, Chicago is at $3.5 billion and Fran and Barry Weisler own 75% of it. So what did they do? They got rich. That's what they Remarkable. did. Remarkable. But, but you see, you know, these stories, which I do love to tell and, and people, people know that they're going to know these shows and they, you're going to know, yeah, rent turns out to be a hit. Okay. Lion King turns out to be a hit. Chicago turns out to be a hit, but I learned from my friend, Peter Stone, who uh, sadly is no longer with us, but Peter wrote two great, musicals 1776 and titanic now 1776 right you know they signed the declaration of independence but (laughs) peter manages to create this suspenseful musical where maybe they don't sign it and you're hanging on the edge of your seat as you're counting the lineup of all are all the 13 colonies going to line up so we can create a country now titanic yes you know the ship is going to sink but peter again manages to create the sense of suspense geez, you hope it just misses the iceberg. And, and I once asked him how he did it. And he said, you, you and I know how these things turned out, but the characters don't. So you have to put yourself in their mind. They do not, the founding fathers do not know if they're going to be able to pull a country together. And the people boarding the Titanic had no clue that 1,700 of them were going to die. So when I started when I wrote this book and researched it, I went back and I interviewed everybody involved in the shows. And I said, just put me in your minds at the time you had the idea for the show while you were writing the show. What were those early rehearsals like? What was that first preview when you went before an audience that paid for its seats? What was that like going into these Tony award battles? How did you feel? I said, don't project ahead. I want to know exactly what you thought at that particular time. And that's how you end up with stories of Fran and Barry Weisler saying, my God, what have we done? Because they did not know. They did not know what Chicago was going to become. I love those two so much, especially Fran. The entire, like all of tech of Finding Neverland. And as you know, there was a lot of tech of Finding Neverland. I would just sit with Fran in the house and she would tell me fabulous stories. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, she she and Barry are great characters. They're kind of my, they're my court gestures. gestures. (laughs) They're so funny, you know. I mean, Fran and Barry, they, they, they came from nothing. You know, I mean, their their whole life is improbable. Barry was this, you know, young, struggling actor schlepping around these Shakespeare plays, uh, high schools in New Jersey. And Fran was a married, married uh, housewife. And, you know, she was working in the box office as a volunteer at this high school where Barry brought his <laughs> little Shakespeare troupe in. 
And she remembered seeing Barry, who's, you know, 10, 15 years younger than she is. And he said, this ridiculous little man in tights prancing around on the stage. <laughs> and she sat around for a talk back and they started talking and uh, they kind of became friendly. And Fran was going through just getting a divorce at the time. And they decided to become business partners and then they became lovers and then they got married. And, you know, they began their career taking um, plays around to to schools. But they found out that um, if you took a, a play to a public school, you couldn't charge admission. You couldn't charge the students for tickets. So they couldn't do that. So then they thought, well, what do we do? Our whole model is making money from the ticket sales, but public schools won't allow us to charge the students. And Fran had a friend who told her, Fran, play the Catholic schools. They're private. They can make the kids pay. And on top of that, they're non-union. So you don't have to pay extra for the union guys to turn the lights on and off after uh, after the school hours. So they, they schlepped Shakespeare plays to Catholic schools for years, you know? Wow. And then their first Broadway play was Othello. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, they did it with uh, James Earl. They had a commitment commitment from James Earl Jones to do a Paul Robeson show that they were going to take to a college. And then um, Paul Robeson's son objected to the script and said he would stage protests all over the place. And James Earl Jones ca called him and said, I can't do this. I can't be in a play that's going to be protested by uh, Paul Robeson's son. He said, so you got to let me out of the contract. He said, but I owe you one. And um you know, they were they were not making much money then, and they were depending on the income from that play to really tide them over. And then they went up to see uh, at Stratford, Connecticut, the Shakespeare Festival, to see a play with Christopher Plummer in it. I think it was Henry IV, part one. And part two, for some reason, had fallen apart. And um, Fran had the idea, why don't we see if we can get Jimmy to do Othello and Chris Plummer can play Iago. And as I show in the book, you know, Fran was a nobody back then, and she tried to get an audience with the uh, with the great Christopher Plummer. Such a great part of the book. Oh yeah. And she, you know, she, I, I won't spoil it all here, but just suffice it to say that uh, she knocks on the dressing room door and the, um, the dresser says, Mr. Plummer is resting. He will <laughs> see you when he's, when he's finished resting. So Fran sits out outside his dressing room door for an hour. And then the dresser says, Mr. Plummer will see you now. And she goes in and there he is in his, uh, He's got an ascot on and a velvet smoking jacket, and he's sitting in a peacock chair. He's got patent leather slippers on, you know, looking every inch the Hollywood glamorous movie star of another era. <laughs> and she goes, hi, my name is Fran Weisler, and my husband and I, we have – he holds his hand up and he says, Mrs. Weisler, is that your name? Let me explain something to you. You do not offer an actor a part. You call the actor's agent and offer the part to the actor through his agent. Now, my agent happens to be at ICM, which is out in California. And by the way, there is a three-hour time difference, so I think you must factor that in when you make the phone call. And Fran was like, well, okay, okay. And then he banished her. He just banished her from the dressing room. She's bowing as she's walking out, desperately trying to find the handle behind her so she can make the <laughs> <laughs> but she got Chris Plummer and she got uh, James Earl Jones and uh, they got a fellow to Broadway and then they became Broadway producers. And it culminated, of course, with um, with the brilliant job they did in Chicago. And as I try to show with with certainly with Rent in Chicago, both of those shows, they also changed the way Broadway was marketed. If you remember the ads for Chicago, they were incredibly sexy. Those women, oh, yeah. sexy William Ivy long costumes and 
And uh, no one had done an ad like that. And it, and Barry was really pushing pushing the uh, the limits of it all. But man, I remember when those ads came out. All of New York was, I've got to see this show. This is the sexiest show in town. And Rent was for young people. So the producers of Rent, Kevin McCullum, Je- McCullum and Jeffrey Seller, they thought we, we have to reach young people. And so therefore we are not going to use the word Broadway or musical in any of our ads. Because if we call it a Broadway musical, young people are going to go, a Broadway musical, that's something my grandmother goes to see at matinees. So if you go back and you look at the old campaigns at Rent, they do not use the word Broadway and they do not use the word musical anywhere in those ads. That's so amazing. But also what they did with the pictures of all the cast. I mean, it was so sexy. All of them were complete individuals. And as a teenager at the time, when you're trying to find out who you are and a musical like that is saying like, yes, there are other gay people. Yes, AIDS does exist. And um, well, Rent is a watershed moment in the 90s. And and that's why I give it uh, quite a few chapters in my book, because you have to remember the early 90s, we still were. We still had the hangover of the big British shows. And the last of those shows the, was Andrew Lloyd Webber's Sunset Boulevard, which was the most expensive musical of all time, $14 million. But it was, you know, full of conflict and feuds. And Andrew fired Patti Lapone and he fired Faye Dunaway and he had to fight with Glenn Close. And I covered all that stuff. And I thought, well, this is a good way to begin the book. You know, a big show that looks like a monster hit, but behind the scenes, everyone's at each other's throats. Fortunately, it's been long enough that I was able to interview Glenn and Patty and Andrew, and they were all pretty honest and candid about what they went through on that show. And we all thought that show was a hit, but in fact, it was so expensive and so big, it sort of imploded and collapsed. And it won the Tony in 1995. The only competition that year was Smokey Joe's Cafe. So Sunset Boulevard de facto one score and book. There wasn't even a contest because Smokey Joe's Cafe was a review of old Lieber and Stoller songs, right? Mm. So, you know, Andrew scoops up everything that year. Now, a year later, he presents posthumously the Tony Award to one Jonathan Larson, who before Rent, we'd never heard of this kid before. My only knowledge of Rent was I got a phone call from the press agent, Richard Kornberg, on, uh, well, it would have been what, January January 28th, 29th. Uh, and he said, you know, Michael, um, Jonathan Larson died last night. And I said, who's Jonathan Larson? He said, well, he's this kid. He's working on the show called Rent down at the New York Theater Workshop. And I said, well, you know, Richard, um, I'll help you out. I'll give you a little mention. I was at the Daily News then. I'll give you a little mention. But Richard, our, our readers have no idea who Jonathan Larson or, or Rent is. And then you went to see Rent, which, you know, cost $125,000 as compared to $14 million for Sunset Boulevard. And you realized when you saw Rent, you thought, oh, this is going to change everything. Because up until Rent, most of the Broadway shows were set in fantasy worlds, okay? You know, the Paris Opera House of, of of the 19th century, Norma Desmond's eerie mansion of Hollywood in the 1950s, uh, the 1848 revolution in Les Miserables, and Katz is set. I have no idea where the thing is set. (laughs) But Rent was suddenly a show that was contemporary. It was New York here and now about issues that New Yorkers were were dealing with, and in particular, young New Yorkers with a rock score. And suddenly Broadway stopped being a place for your grandmother and became a place that young people wanted to go to see. And as you know, Josh, everybody who writes for Broadway now is there because of Rent. You know, Bobby Lopez, who did uh, Avenue Q in the Book of Mormon, loved Rent. 
uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, saw rent 30 times or something like that. Brian Yorkie, Tom Kitt, all of these people, they fell in love with the musical theater and wrote their contemporary shows because of what Jonathan Larson did. And it was, um, it was interesting to try to recreate his, his, his final years because people think, first of all, it's funny because people, if you mention Jonathan Larson now, this, oh, he didn't, he died of AIDS, right? No, he did not die of AIDS. He died of a, of an aneurysm, uh, right before his dress rehearsal. And they think, oh, and the show was a big hit. Well, no, it took a little time for it to become a hit. And oh, John, Jonathan must, must've been doing well, right? No, he was absolutely at the end of his rope. He was totally broke. And he said to people who I interviewed, who told me this, he said, if this one doesn't go, I have to leave the theater and find something else to do with my life. This is it. This is my last chance. That's mm-hmm. how desperate he was. And the tragedy is that, um, you know, he went home after, uh, after the dress rehearsal and put on a, uh, the tea kettle and dropped dead of his aneurysm. He's probably dead before he even hit the floor of the kitchen of his little walk-up. God, it's so heartbreaking. But um, you really chronicle it so beautifully in your book, especially... Um, you know, talking with his sister and with his family and the people that were really there, like Kevin. Uh, Funny story, my allergy doctor, when I was a kid, I had to get shots three times a week, is Kevin McCollum's uncle. And he put in a bunch of money to rent. And that's why he was able to close his practice. And I had to find a new (laughs) allergy doctor. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. Again, you know, Jeffrey and Kevin, I interviewed them and they didn't have any money back. I mean, Jeffrey had absolutely no money. He had, you know, he lost his job. He, he was working for Fran and Barry Weissel in their office. And uh, they said, it's time for you to move on, get out of here. In fact, it's funny. Uh, I put this in the book. Jeffrey had seen um, uh, Tick, Tick, Boom, uh, which was one of Jonathan Larson's early musicals. And he wrote Larson a fan letter saying, you know, if you ever have time, I'd love to meet you for a drink. And the, as he was getting fired from Fran and Barry's office, the reception, the receptionist paged him and said, Jeffrey, a Jonathan Larson is on the phone for you. <laughs> and that's how their friendship began. Kevin had a, he had a uh, booking office. He booked shows on the road, but he had bought his partner out. So he was left with very little money. And so they had to go to this guy who uh, became a very good friend of mine, Alan Gordon, who was a billionaire. And Alan came up with two thirds of the, uh, of the money for, uh, for rent and, Jeffrey and Kevin scraped together the rest from relatives and friends. And well, his relative, the allergy, the allergy doctor puts some yeah. money. There you go. Uncle George. <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. It's just, it, one thing that I love is that for me, I started, you know, really working 
around Broadway around 2008. Mm -hmm. And all these people were already established, you know, kings and queens of the theater, whereas it's so neat opening up your book and being like, oh my gosh, Jeffrey Seller was once a kid like me. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah, just, no, it, it was an interesting group of uh, interesting group of people who came up through the ranks then. And, uh, you know, Jeffrey and Kevin, they were a new breed of producer. But, but you know, you find these funny details along the way. Uh, and I, I do love the gossip of Broadway. And fortunately, a lot of people were happy to gossip with, with me for this book. But, you know, Jeffrey and Kevin, they're young kids. They partner up with this older guy, Alan Gordon, who has six seats on the stock exchange, owns buildings all over the place, comes from a famous real estate family. And Alan was hilarious. So I just loved him. Alan was a guy who thought everybody was a schmuck and everybody was an idiot. And he was a billionaire who took the bus to and from work. I remember once having dinner with him uh, one night and uh, we finished up and I said, well, I'm going to jump in a cab. Are you you, you want to grab a cab? He said, I'm eyeing that bus. I said, Alan, you're a billionaire. You take the bus. He said, how do you think I'm a billionaire? By squandering money like you on cabs? But, 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 you know, here, so here you have Jeffrey and Kevin, they're young. And then you got Alan, who is a very successful businessman. Well, rent hits and the Wall Street Journal profiles Jeffrey and Kevin as the new young kids on the block who are going to save Broadway and make it relevant again. And Alan gets left out of that article. Yeah. Well, my God, Alan went completely crazy. And that sowed all of this tension between Alan and Jeffrey and Kevin. And it leads up to the point where the Tony Awards, the eve of the Tony Awards, and you know Rent's going to sweep everything. Jeffrey says, I think I'm the one who should speak because I was the one who was closest to Jonathan. They were genuine friends. And Helen said, if you don't let me speak, I'm going to punch you off the stage on CBS. Well, if you go if you go back at those Tony Awards, you will see that Jeffrey, Kevin, and Alan they each had thirty seconds to give a speech, and nobody got punched. Oh gosh, I still I loved that you brought in the opening of those awards when Rosie or not Rosie when Nathan Lane was dressed as Julie Andrews and Victor Victoria. Right, right, right. Because Julie had declined her. Uh, or Tony nomination because she was the only person nominated from Victor Victoria. Yeah. Forbidden Broadway did the best Victor Victoria sketch oh, yeah. where they changed, you know, a silly girl or whatever it was to oh, right. giving up your Tony like a naughty child. That's right. I forgot about that. God, so funny. And um, also, you detail Garth Drabinsky in your book so incredibly. What a character. Well, yeah, I mean, I knew Garth well, and I was one of the first reporters just to have my doubts about his financial empire. He created this company called Livent that produced Kiss of the Spider Woman and uh, Showboat and Ragtime and Fosse, and it was a publicly traded company, and it looked to the outside world as though it were this incredibly successful company with these huge, these big hit shows, but a few of us it just those of us who knew our way around Broadway and knew how expensive it is to put up a show and how expensive it is to market and advertise a show, we would scratch our heads and say, you know, I just I don't see how these numbers work. I mean, every single weekend section of the New York Times is just gobbled up by these ads for Showboat. I and mean, he's spending half a million dollars, a million dollars a week on these shows just in advertising alone. And Canny people like the Nederlanders and the Schuberts would just shake their head and say, 
something is wrong here. Something is wrong. But Garth got bigger and bigger and he bought theaters around the country and he built the Ford Center uh, on Times Square right there. And he produced ragtime, hugely expensive. And everybody, he had a huge company and everybody lived well. They had the most lavish offices up in Toronto that you can imagine. And then, of course, it all came collapsing. And it turned out that uh, Garth and his business partner, Myron Gottlieb, had kept literally kept two sets of books. They had a set of books that they showed investors and and the Securities and Exchange Commission that showed all these shows were making tons of money. And then they had the secret set of books that showed all of the spending made it impossible for these shows to ever return money. And there was just a an ever-deepening sea of red ink. And at the end of the day, um, Garth and Myron, they went to jail for fraud and forgery. Yeah. Do you think things would have been a little bit different if they would have uh, if they would have brought in ragtime earlier in the season with the life and um, was it Titanic that season yeah, as well? Yeah. yeah, I think that was one of the great miscalculations in the history of Broadway because they needed ragtime. They needed ragtime to be a smash, and they needed it to win the Tony Award. And it opened in Toronto uh, two years before New York, and, and it got great reviews in Toronto. It was it was rough, it was raw, it was exciting, it was vital, and uh, New York critics went up and, and raved about it. And people up who worked for Garth begged him, bring it in right away, because the season was kind of weak. It was the life, Steel Pier, and Titanic that year. And Garth wouldn't do it. I mean, he was building his Ford Center, and he thought Ragtime would be the perfect show for his perfect theater, and he was not going to open the Ford Center with anything but ragtime. So he chose to wait a year and he sent ragtime to LA where it completely fell apart and lost a ton of money. And then he decided, well, I'll come in the next year. Well, little, little show came along that nobody was really talking about called the Lion King. And it just ate ragtime, beat it for the Tony award. And within a few months, Garth was looking for new investors in his company. And he found Roy Furman and Mike Ovitz, the founder of CAA, and then Roy and Mike began to do a forensic accounting, and that's when they discovered the two sets of books, and Garth was out. And then shortly, a year or so later, Livent went totally bankrupt and exists no more. Wow. It's, uh, I don't know, the book is uh, is so much fun to read. It is so incredible hearing about these Tony races and um, and how all of that works. Now, with you... You say that like you weren't like big into theater, but didn't you do some plays when you were growing up? I did, yes. I was in the all-Christian version of The Diary of Anne Frank. I grew up in a small town in upstate New York called Geneseo, and there was only one Jewish family, the Levins. And everyone said, well, you know the Levins, the Jewish family. And the Levin kids, they auditioned for The Diary of Anne Frank, but they, weren't, they didn't get cast. So it was The Diary of Anne Frank with Presbyterians, Episcopalians, and uh, Catholics. It was a bit. It was a bit like David Laveau's production of Fiddler on the Roof, Alfred <laughs> Molina and three Irish girls playing stars. <laughs> a fiddler with no Jews. <laughs> that's right, exactly. Diary of Anne Frank with no Jews. There, that's what <laughs> so yeah, I did that, and it was and it was fun. You know, being in plays was 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 fun. It was interesting to do, but it was never anything that I. I thought, I mean, I, I, you can't make a living at this. I'm, I'm no actor. And I didn't know what a director was really. I didn't know what a producer was. Certainly. I just did not know. I didn't know the world until I got to college. I went to, I went to Columbia and I had to find a job one summer because I wanted to stay in New York. I didn't want to go back to Geneseo, but I needed to earn some money. So I, you know, I could help my dad pay the, um, 
the dormitory fees for the summer. And I saw uh, on the, <laughs> this is way before computers. Uh, so you would go into the student center and there'd be a message board with little advertisements for possible jobs for students. And I saw uh, summer internship pays $100 a week for Broadway producer Elizabeth I. McCann. I thought, hmm, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm in New York. I've seen a couple of Broadway shows. Could be interesting. And uh, so I went to uh, work for Liz McCann that summer. Later, she became a great friend. To this day, she has absolutely no memory of my being in her office for about six months. <laughs> she called me kid. She never learned my name at all. She called me kid. And when I would say to people, I'd say, and I want to introduce my friend Liz McCann, she gave me my start in the theater. And she said, Jesus Christ, don't tell people that. They'll never talk to me again. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun. You know, we worked on we worked on this this play. I'm not going to I'm not going to give you the title because uh, it, 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 that's part of the punchline. But so we're, there was this play Liz was doing that summer, and it had an English cast. And one of my first jobs I had to do for her, I remember I came to the office and she said, "Oh God, I got this actor. We put him up in this." hotel in midtown and oh he's complaining that the air conditioning unit isn't working she said go over there and fix it i was like i'm a history major from columbia i don't really think i know how to fix an air conditioning unit but if that's the job that's the job so i remember walking through times square to go over to this it was kind of a cruddy hotel he was in actually i thought well i don't know what i mean i stopped at uh, a hardware store and bought a screwdriver so i looked like i knew what i was doing and uh I knock on his door and I go in and this elongated man who looks like he's just gotten out of bed says, yes. I said, oh, I'm, I'm, I held up the screwdriver. I said, I'm, I'm here to fix your air conditioning unit. He said, oh, it's beastly hot in here. Beastly hot. Beastly <laughs> hot over there. So I walk into the hotel room there. Well, he had kind of in a little kitchen apartment type thing he had. And I see this, um, rather fetching calf sticking out from uh, under the covers of his bed. And this woman gets up and she's the ingenue in the play. All right, oh my like, God. It's so hot in here. Oh, it's so hot in here. And he's going, it's beastly hot in here. Beastly hot in here. <laughs> so I go over to the air conditioning unit and I, I just stuck the screwdriver and I jiggled around and it started. It was incredible. The theater God smiled on me. He's, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I left. And that elongated man was one Alan Rickman, the star of Les Liaisons Dangereuses. And the girl in the bed was Beatty Edney, who was the ingenue at the time. That's incredible. Yes. Yep. Yep. That's Beastly how I got to know Alan Rickman. We became kind of beastly. Oh, I remember. Beastly. It's so hot in here. Jesus, these people are nuts. Anyway, I got out of there with my life, so. But that was fun. And then, you know, hanging out with Liz, that's when I got to meet, well, I didn't really get to know them because I was I was an intern. Nobody was paying any attention to me. But I would deliver things to Jimmy Niederlander's office, and that was kind of this crazy, freewheeling, dusty old, grubby place above the Palace Theater. And, you know, Jimmy would be sitting in his office with his feet on the desk, yelling into a phone, and so the secretary was this old broad. She said, what do you want, kid? What do you want, kid? I said, oh, this is for Jimmy. And, and it was, um, Julius was the elevator operator who he would pray with you. He'd open the Bible and pray with you as he took the um, elevator up to Jimmy's offices. And Jimmy actually bought Julius with the theater. Jimmy bought the Palace Theater and Julius had been working there as the elevator operator for years. 
So Jimmy said, well, you can keep running the elevator. Kept He, he bought the Palace Theater and Julius came right with it. And they, were, <laughs> they were insane. And then you'd go over, I'd have to deliver opening night tickets or, you know, this is before email. So if you had important documents that had to go back and forth, I was kind of the runner in the office. You know, Liz would say, take this over to the Schubert's, take this to Jimmy. And so you go from Jimmy's office over to the Schubert offices and they were, you know, above the Schubert Theater. They'd been... Um, Lee Schubert's uh, penthouse apartment, and they had Flemish tapestries and leather-bound volumes and antique furniture and big grand pianos, and they were very quiet. Every, everything was very quiet. They had an elevator operator, too, who's still there, by the way. He, wow. would give you, he would give you the word of the day. He read the thesaurus from cover to cover, cover to cover, and he'd say, here's the word of the day. What does it mean? And you'd have to try to figure out what his word of the day meant. And then you'd get in the Schubert offices and it was, it was silence. It was very quiet. You know, this, like, this was real quiet, abiding power. And you'd go over to the woman, the receptionist, the one at J- Jimmy's would be, what do you want, kid? What do you, what do you want? Why are you bothering me? She's smoking big gold glasses. The receptionist, the Schubert, she'd say, I'd say, this is for Mr. Schoenfeld and Mr. Jacobs. And she'd say, thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> up there. <laughs> <laughs> two crazy worlds, you know, but but very powerful people. And I suppose it was from my running back and forth between the Niederlanders and the Schuberts that planted the seeds in my mind for Razzle Dazzle about the power behind the business, the real power of the business. And that is the theater owners. I think that we should make your two books into a miniseries. I really do. Well, I'll tell you, I can't give you the details right now, but... Um, in fact, uh, there is a miniseries that is in the works for Razzle Dazzle, but none of the deals have been signed, so I can't reveal anything yet. But it's going to be written and directed by somebody very, very, very well known. Now, when the book fa- first came out, funnily enough, uh, it was optioned immediately by Radical Media. They picked it up. I mean, even before it was published, they picked it up. And I was kind of excited, you know, because I thought, ooh, yeah, I had visions of my book would become the next mash and I'd be so rich. I could buy a house in Laurel Canyon. I'm not <laughs> who I was, but you know, they, they developed these things, they developed them and they had a good pilot. Doug McGrath, who wrote um, the Carol King musical, beautiful, wrote a good, wrote a good pilot episode uh, for Razzle Dazzle, but they couldn't sell it to anyone. The problem was, if you remember, you just had the TV series smash and that was not a hit. So everybody said, well, we'd love to do a Broadway show, but, you know, Smash was a failure, so we can't take a chance. But like everything, you know, you wait a little while, memories are short, there are new executives in these uh, production offices. So um, uh, Razzle Dazzle has a has a new lease on life as a miniseries because nobody but you and me remember Smash anymore. Well, I mean, but thank God that it's becoming a miniseries because Smash wasn't real at all. I mean, you were incredible on it, playing yourself. <laughs> right, yes. Remarkable. I had a blast though. I lo- I love doing it. First of all, I had my own trailer. That was great. And when we would be on uh, location, I would just leave the trailer door open, you know, in the hopes that people would walk by and look in to see who was there. And then Douglas Cartabine walked by one day and he said, Michael, don't go all Hollywood on us, please. I'm begging you, don't leave us. Don't leave us. <laughs> nobody ever nobody but Douglas Cartabine ever recognized me in my trailer. But the best part was I used to go hang out with Angelica Houston who was great. She had so many terrific stories and she would, she'd have her script with her and we'd talk and we'd gossip and she'd tell me great stories about Hollywood back in the day. And then she'd say, now, what do you think of our scene? I said, Oh, I think it's okay. She said, would I really say that to you? 
I'd say, actually, you would, because she was playing a producer and I was playing the columnist. Yeah. I'd say, actually, you'd probably say it this way. And then I'd write a new line out for it. And then I would say, and you know, if you said that to me, I would actually say this to you. And then you'd respond this way. And then I would say this. So what I was secretly doing, I was adding more lines for myself. Because I know on a, on a, a television set, the star can do whatever the star wants to. So if the star wants to change the line, the star can change the line. So I would just sneak a few more little bits in for me. And we got away with it. It was fun. Oh, my God. See, I just feel like a proud Jewish booby right now being like, that's a Michael. I bet your parents were doing that. That's a baby. <laughs> well, in a um, Presbyterian kind of way. Well, I also love just, you know, this is a little corny, but that you dedicate the book to your parents. Oh, yeah. Well, they supported me in everything I did. I mean, you know, what do you I, I was going to be a lawyer. I, you know, I studied history at Columbia and I was uh, the next move for me was to be a lawyer. That's that's was the plan. So when you tell your and then I got this crazy summer job after Liz McCann editing this tiny little magazine called Theater Week. And uh, it was for three months and I had a blast interviewing all these theater people. And, you know, I, I remember saying my, to my parents, I said, yeah, I think I think I may uh drop the idea of going to law school and stay at this little magazine and make $18,000 a year. How's that sound? <laughs> How do <laughs> they, they respond? Said, they were like, listen, if, if it makes you happy, you know, do what you got to do what you want to do. It's fine. You know, I mean, the reason I stayed theater week was great fun because I was, I knew Broadway people, but I didn't really know a lot of the history of Broadway back then. It's funny. I'm, I guess you could call me the historian of Broadway now, but I, I certainly didn't know the history of Broadway. Um, I knew Stephen Sondheim and I knew Andrew Lloyd Webber, but I, my first assignment was to go interview this old guy who he was writing a new Broadway musical. And I was only, I really didn't know who he was. So I went over to his office and he had an office above the Mark Hellinger theater. And he had to walk up these creaky old stairs and this rabbit worn of these dusty old offices. It looked like it was 1946. I swear to God. Wow. And then I go into this kind of a cruddy, ratty office. And again, everybody back in those days had a broad as a secretary, some woman sitting there at the desk with gigantic glasses, always smoking. What do you want? <laughs> what do you want? It wasn't like, how are you? Nice to see you. May I help you? What do you want? That was it. What do you want? I said, well, I'm here to interview so-and-so. And I looked and there's this guy and he's banging away on the piano and says, in, kid, in, in. In everybody called me kid back in those. In what do you think about this? And he plays me this song, and while he's playing this song, he's got a little black and white television set perched on top of the piano with the OTB on it, and he's got a phone and he's playing away. And then he picks the phone up and says, "Put a hundred bucks on Splendor of the Grass." Phone down. And he keeps playing, so he's making bets while he's playing me the song, and he's got a he's got a cigarello in his mouth. And I noticed the piano has all these burnt marks on it because he would put the cigarello out on his piano. <laughs> and he had, he had big sunglasses and a big gold chain. And I remember saying, uh, well, that's very nice. Uh, could you play me a song that you wrote that I might as, might know? And he said, well, how's this one for you? And he goes, da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it was Julie Stein. And then he sat there for the next two hours. He played me the score to Gypsy. He played me um, uh, Funny Girl. He was playing me songs from his new show, which was The Red Shoes. And I regret to say those songs were not as good as the old classics that he played me. Sure. And the show at the end was a failure. 
But I remember leaving two hours with this guy. And I thought, boy, if, if this is the job, I don't want to do anything else. And I ha- came up with this idea, a series on the great old Broadway composers. So I went to meet with Jerry Herman and Charlie Strauss and um, uh, Lee Adams, uh, all these guys, Cy Coleman. And you have to remember, Josh, this is the 80s, right? So these guys have been kind of forgotten. You know, the whole Andrew Lloyd Webber world had eclipsed these guys, right? There was no, they, they had not had hits in many, many years. So they were thrilled that a little kid like me wanted to profile them and interview them. I mean, Charlie Strauss had not had a hit since Annie, you know, nobody wow. was interviewing Charlie Strauss. So I got to know all these guys and, you know, they became friends and uh, some of them had great comebacks and uh, great revivals of their shows. And sadly, most of them are, uh, are no longer with us, but, but it was fun. And the other great thing was I got to see their houses and they had great houses. I Jerry, bet. Herman, Jerry Herman had a townhouse. Oh my God. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. John Kander had two townhouses. That's, in, I mean, the only huge house I've seen is the, is the big Weisler estate, um, oh, yeah, yeah. up in uh, Westchester. Well, hey, um, did, Fran, did Fran ever give you her tour? Oh. She takes, you, she takes you down the long hallway and, uh, she has the, all the posters of their shows are there. She comes to Chicago and she says, and this is the house. This is, I'm sorry, this is the show that allowed us to buy this house. And then she goes through a few more posters and comes to Susical and says, <laughs> and this is the show that almost forced us to sell this house. <laughs> I really want to do a show all about the making of Susical. I mean, the stories there from like oh. Jen Cody to Kevin Chamberlain to Fran are oh, yeah. legendary. Yeah. You know, I was kind of, um, I touch a little bit on Susical in the book, but Susical comes along. Uh, a little after my time frame, so I just happened to mention it toward the the coda of the book, if you will. But I, I really, I realized. I mean, I couldn't at the end of Singular Singular Sensation. I really could not improve on how Broadway came back after uh, after September 11th, and I really kind of end. Um, <laughs> I end with that great TV commercial. Remember they made uh, New York, New York there, and um, oh yeah, there, and uh, I tell the story that Nathan Lane told me because he and Matthew were in the producers and they were leading the whole parade of stars, everybody in costume and they're dressed as Bialystok and Bloom. And then boom, out of nowhere, Elaine Stritch shows up, you know, <laughs> in her white pantsuit and her white pork pie hat. And of course she has not been around to rehearse. She doesn't know the steps, but she wants to be next to Nathan. So she plants herself next to Nathan and he's trying to teach her the steps and her hand smacks him in the face. And she's going this way when the other crowd's going this way, shows her what she's doing. And they, the director's in the trailer looking. He said, got to move her. We've got to move her. She can't be there. She doesn't know what she's doing. Move her. So, you know, being the big, big director that he was, he sent his little assistant to tell Elaine she had to move. And uh, they move her down the line. And then they go, action. And she runs right back to Nathan Lane by his side. And if you look at that clip, there's Elaine. No clue what she's doing, but she's right next to Nathan. Where she wants to be because no one is going to tell Elaine Stritch where she's going to stand. My uh, my first encounter with Stritch in person was opening night of Hair in uh, 2009. I was a swing <laughs> on opening night, so I had nothing to do but sit outside. And um, at intermission, she comes out of the theater, the white suit, everything, with yep. like a little entourage of gays behind her. She stomps up to the stage door, swings it open, yells, you kids are great! slams the door shut and then keeps walking down towards ninth Avenue to get a cab or something. Oh, that was, I once took Elaine out to, uh, 
dinner in the West Village where I live. Now, Elaine, she used to walk everywhere. That was her exercise. And she was living up at the Carlisle. And it was a beautiful May day. And she walked from the Carlisle on the Upper East Side down to my, down to the restaurant, which was on uh, Perry Street and the river. It's, you know, as far away in New York, <laughs> two places than you can be. So she walks down and then I, I come out of my apartment and go over to the restaurant and I see Elaine trailed by about 10 gay guys who she managed to pick up in her stroll along the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally in, totally in awe that they cannot believe that she's yakking with them and talking to them and blah, blah, blah. And then I meet her and I say, oh, hello, hello, Elaine. And I look at these guys. I said, hello. And she turns to them and she says, all right, boys, the table's not big enough. Scram. <laughs> <laughs> she was great. I loved her. She and I became very good friends. I spent a lot of time with her. Uh, oh, she was, uh, just fabulous. During uh, Into the Woods in Central Park, uh, Maeve, her longtime dresser, was Donna Murphy's dresser. And right. she left Maeve this incredible voicemail that was like, Maeve, I need two tickets to tonight's performance of Into the Woods. I understand it's sold out, but you tell Oscar if there's a damn Sondheim show, tickets are due me. <laughs> well, I think I, I have this in the book. She did that amazing. You would not have seen it. You wouldn't have been in New York then. But one of the, one, I think the chapter I'm most, most proud of in the book is the chapter on the comeback of Edward Albee. Because mm. he was out in the wilderness for a long time. He could not get a play done in New York because he'd had so many failures. And then he writes this remarkable play called Three Tall Women. And he has one of the best second acts in the American theater. And shortly after Three Tall Women, Lincoln Center did this brilliant revival. I still remember it as if I saw it yesterday of a delicate balance with uh, Rosemary Harris, George Grizzard, and Elaine Stritch. And it was, it was one of the most, most moving productions of anything I've ever seen. Such a great play. But Elaine was nuts, of course. And, you know, she'd come running out of the uh, stage door in her panties 10 minutes before the play started to check with the guys at the box office to make sure no one had stolen her house seats, right? So the audience would be filing in, and there's Elaine Stritch in her panties screaming at the box office guys. And then she and George, they did not get on well. And I kind of detailed in the book uh, the reasons for that. But one night, he just had enough. And when the curtain came down, he slugged her. He just Ooh. slugged her. And she ran into her dressing room and she got her curling iron out and she chased him around the backstage, trying to hit him with her curling iron. And Andre Bishop told me, he said, you know, the only safe place in that theater was when the curtain was up. He said, <laughs> remarkable performances. But he said, when the curtain came down, you didn't know what the hell was going to happen. And he said, the stage manager was having a nervous breakdown. I was having a nervous breakdown. And he said, we could have extended the run because the demand was so great for it. He said, but he said, I thought I would be in an insane asylum and so would my stage manager. So we called Edward and we said, Edward, it's just too crazy backstage with these, with these characters. So we're going to, we're going to not extend the run. And Edward couldn't have cared less. You know, he had a great production of a delicate balance, come back assured. He was just kind of amused by the whole thing. He, Edward floated above it all. As Terrence McNally says in my book, Edward was the least theatrical theater person he ever met. Edward had no interest in the game of showbiz, no interest in the gossip, no interest in the parties, no interest in being seen here and there. He was, he was a complete, uh, a complete artist who just didn't have much use for the whole showbiz quality of show business. Yeah. Well, Michael, I'm really blown away that I got to talk to you today. Um, 
I I hope is there ever going to be a moment in time where we can have a book of all of your columns? Well, um, possibly. You know, this book, Singular Sensation, I really, you know, it's based on a lot of reporting I did back then, but I did not want it to be just a compendium of columns and I didn't want it to be a memoir. That's why I went back and interviewed everybody, everybody involved in these shows, because I really wanted to create it from their perspective. And it was, it really amazed me and it kind of humbled me as to, I thought I knew a lot back in the 90s, but I my columns only scratched the surface of what was really going on that people can tell me about in detail for this book now because it's going on 20, 25 years ago. So they feel comfortable talking about something that's now so far in the past. So um, I think if you were to look at my – I went back and read some of my columns after I finished a, finished a chapter and I, I can't believe I didn't know this and I didn't know that. And they only told me a little tiny – gave me a little tiny glimpse of this. So, you know, in a way, my columns were the seeds for singular sensation, but the, the, you know, the branches and the trunk are the interviews I did with all of those people that I covered all those years ago. And it's so fabulous. It really is. Well, um, I mean, I hope everybody runs and gets singular sensation as well as razzle dazzle. And then in 10 or 15 years, when we want to do a new book, we can talk some Finding Neverland and Into the Woods stories that will have your head spin. Oh, I'm sure. Well, I guess there will be a third book, but it's probably will have something to do with how Broadway comes back uh, after this pandemic. And that's going to take some time. So yeah. in the meantime, enjoy Razzle Dazzle and uh, Singular Sensation. Thank you, Michael. You're a hero. You're amazing. You're a mensch. And um, if I ever need you to fix an air conditioner, I'm going to let you know. Okay, boo? I am your man. My fallback okay. real. Handy oh. man. Real. Ah, well, thank you, Michael. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in for this episode of Josh Swallows Broadway. Josh Swallows Broadway is produced by Alan Seals, Dory Berenstein, and myself, Josh Lehman, with associate producer Elizabeth Wheelis. And special thanks to our Patreon producers, David Rimmer and Josh Harris. You can join them. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash Josh Swallows Broadway. Leave a rating. Leave a review. I read them. This is how I continue living. Help me live. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for keeping Broadway alive. And swallow you soon. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.